Welcome friends to the Someone Gets Me podcast. I am your host, Diane Allen, and I am so delighted that you're here. This podcast was created because I believe there is a visionary leader inside each one of us who is waiting to be seen. In each episode of Someone Gets Me, you will hear useful tips from successful visionaries who will share their stories about how being seen has allowed them to take their vision out into the world with action. Welcome everybody to Someone Gets Me. I have a great guest for us today. Brian Mahan is actually in Mexico City now, but he's from California. And I met him through a friend of mine and he is amazing. You are gonna love listening to what he has to say. He's very wise when it comes to shame and trauma and resiliency and just having a vibrant, amazing life. So today we're gonna talk about how to live a resilient, vibrant life following kinds of chaos or trauma or all of those things that sometimes people think make us stay down. He's going to show us how to rise above it. So welcome to the show, Brian. Thank you. So glad to be here. <laughs> oh, this is going to be so fun. But I do have a, a couple questions before we dive really deep into the, the work you do. And that is, tell us a little bit about how you got started along this line of work because it's it's very intense and very healing and very amazing but how did you get here well i got into the work originally as a client because i had spent pretty much my entire adult life trying to heal i tried every pill potion and powder i sat at the foot of every guru i prayed i meditated i medicated i yoga myself into a stupor I went to every workshop and retreat. I read every book except for the one on self-sabotage that I never finished. And I felt like I was kind of getting better some a bit along the way. And then I had a catastrophic car wreck in 2003, at the end of 2003. And after that car wreck, it seemed as though everything I thought I had healed came back in spades. Mm. As if as if it had progressed over time. So, you know, sometimes they say in, in the realm of AA or you know, Alcoholics Anonymous that when you pick up drinking, you don't pick up drinking where you left off. You pick up drinking as if it had been progressing the whole time. Right. And so that was the kind of feeling that I had is that, you know, all the progress I thought I had made, all the shifts and changes and growth that I thought I had made seemed to just come back in space. And it left me in the middle of the living room floor with the curtains drawn and the phones off and the lights out and for several days on end and i don't even know to be honest with you exactly how long everything was going on but i was too afraid to tell anybody what was happening because i thought i was either cracking up or i had become possessed in hindsight i recognized that what i was having were, were panic attacks but i spent you know just days on end and what seemed like endless again now i know it's panic but I was just flopping around like a flounder on a hot rock in the middle of the living room floor. And my heart was pounding out of my chest. And I thought it was going to land on the floor beside me and just stifling my screams because I didn't want the neighbors to hear. And uh, finally, uh, one day I was able to peel myself off the floor and make it across town to see my first point in health at the time, Dr. Connie. I went in and I sat down with her and I said, Connie, I need a referral. And she said, what's going on? And I said, I need an exorcist. And she looked at me and she was like, 
honey, what's going on? <laughs> so, <laughs> right. So I told her what was happening, and she said, "You don't need an exorcist. You need a trauma specialist." And so, thank God, I didn't go to a priest. <laughs> it could have been a very different turning point in my life. <laughs> anyway, so I was sent to a somatic experiencing practitioner, and in three sessions, my panic attack stopped. And I haven't had one in 17 years. And then after that third session, the somatic experiencing training, beginning one, it's a three-year program, beginning one started in Los Angeles two weeks later. Mm -hmm. And so I just signed up. I was like, I don't know what voodoo this is, but I want to figure out what it is. <laughs> you know. And I'm so glad that I did because I never thought in a million years I'd be where I am, doing what I'm doing, being able to palpably help people shift and change and transform their lives. Oh, what a story. So did you always have panic and anxiety and that kind of thing before no, no. the car wreck? No, no. Just, it just all. happened after. Wow. wow. And I think it was, I think it came after I realized that everything I thought I had healed had come back, right? Because I had spent 25 years trying everything. And so now that everything was back, I was completely despondent and hopeless because I had already tried everything. In my mind, I'd already tried everything. Right. You know, right. and I thought, well, how am I, you know, if none of it worked, then how do I move forward? You know, and that just left me really pissed off that I survived the car wreck. Wow. Because I didn't want to move forward at that point. If I was going to have to live, if my future was going to look like my past, I didn't want my future. Yep. Mm-hmm. It makes total sense, especially after 25 years of really working on yourself and then having that like, oh, no, it's none of all of it was for naught and worse than that, even. Wow. Right, right. I mean, it wasn't for naught. I mean, like I said, you know, it seemed like some things were changing. You know, mm -hmm. I didn't send everyone I ever met running to the hills within three days of meeting them. <laughs> 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 I, I, I was able to spend longer periods of time with my family than I had been before. Um, you know, I, I, I you know, I, I, you know, there was, there was some changes um, that I was able to kind of, you know, white knuckle my way through over the years. Um, but nothing really dramatic, nothing really took, you know, um, and I just felt like I was just like, like inching along, inching along. Um, and wow. then when it all got ripped asunder, I just thought, I'm doomed. I'm done. I'm over. I can't, I can't, I don't want to live like this. Wow. That's wild. So tell us a little bit about what it was like growing up. How, where, where were you raised? Who, what was your life like before all of this? My, I'm sorry. You, we kind of froze there for a second. Say that again. Yeah. That I, they, we did freeze. Um, what was your life like before all this? Like, where were you raised? How would you describe Brian's younger years leading mm -hmm. you into like even the idea of searching and learning and healing and growing? Like, how did you even get there? Because not too many men right. do that. That's rare for men. So right. until they're really up against a wall, but you were obviously ahead of your time. So how did that happen? Well, um, I grew up in the South. Um, I'm 55, I'm getting ready to turn 56. So, you know, I was born in 65. So I was in the South, you know, mid to late 
sixties, early seventies, mid seventies, you know, mm-hmm. um, just to kind of give you an idea of the culture and, you know, structure in which I grew up. Um, and I also grew up in an affluent household. Um, and, um, my parents had the best of intentions. They wanted to raise the three of us like we were fifth generation, blue blooded, well bred Southern gentlemen. But the problem was is that my parents were nouveau riche in the sense that my, they both grew up in very um, difficult backgrounds. And my dad put himself through college and med school and, you know, built a little real estate empire. So they were, you know, um, new money in an old money world. Oh, okay. Right. Mm-hmm. And so with the best of intention, you know, my mom, I'm sure, read every book on etiquette. And, you know, there was an enormous amount of focus on our allocution and, and carriage and manners and, and all of that. And, you know, if they wanted us to be embraced by this echelon of society that they didn't necessarily feel embraced by because they felt so different having come from their background. Right. Um, but what that ultimately did was that I internalized that in such a way as a child that I was constantly being course corrected. You know, it felt like, I'm sure it wasn't necessarily the case, but it felt like everything I said was corrected. The yeah. elocution, diction, um, vocabulary, etc. Every action I took was corrected. Everything about my physical appearance had to be spot on, not a hair out of place, not a grass stain on my jeans, you know, every, everything, every thought, word, and action, right, right. was course corrected. Uh, I've got messages showing up on my phone. Shoot, I wish I'd put on my do not disturb. I may have to do that in a minute. Um, so what that taught me was there wasn't anything good about me. Mm. There wasn't anything that could be that that I could say well enough. There wasn't anything that I could do well enough. Right. And I internalized that as the, that, 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 that there's something wrong with me and there isn't anything good about me. And so I learned to be whoever I was around. I became a chameleon. So when I was around my mom, I tried to be my mom. And when I was around my dad, I tried to be my dad, you know, and when I was around more than two people, I became invisible Mm -hmm. because I couldn't be everything that everyone else was. Right. And so I learned to be still and quiet and disappear in groups. So I didn't realize it at the time, but that is, you know, what we call shame, right? Shame is used in every culture since the beginning of time to socialize children and to protect the tribe or the family or the community. It's also used to establish power and maintain hierarchy. And so shame is a ubiquitous human experience. Yes. Right? And I grew up in the house of shame, halfway between the house of blues and the house of pancakes. (laughs) And, you know, I just, I didn't know anything other than shame. right? Right. And so I didn't understand that me being so aloof um, was that I was dissociative. 
I didn't understand that my inability to socially engage and feel like I fit in and belonged anywhere was as a result of the shame that I felt for being different and other and not like everyone, right? right. And so that made me shut down and shut down and shut down. Um, but then I leveraged that chameleon-like skill set right. of how I became whoever I was around and I became an actor because then I could lose myself. Mm -hmm. Sure. Right. I, I could emote without consequence. In fact, it was appreciated. Right. And so I could step up on the stage or in front of the camera and I could be someone else entirely. From the sound of my voice to my carriage, to my posture, to the way I use my hands, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Everything right. changed for me. Yeah. Um, when I when I stepped into character, and so I found a freedom and an abandon there, you know, um, and so that's really kind of what drove me for most of my life. Uh, my intention was always that I was going to be an actor. Um, you know, I went to the best school in the country. Um, I then moved to New York City and I did the waiter actor thing for a while, and then I booked a, a job that took me out to L.A. and um, I landed in L.A. and and. But wow, I could live where there's sky, <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, and I could have a yard, and I could have a house, and you know. So I just stayed in LA, and I did the actor thing in LA for a long time. Um, and then uh, December twenty first, two thousand and three, I had this car wreck, and it just changed everything. Totally changed the trajectory. Wow, wow. Yeah. So do you still do any acting? No, I haven't done anything in probably 20 years. Do you so, miss it? I miss it a lot in the sense of I miss performing, rehearsing, breaking a script down, ensemble, mm -hmm. the people. But I don't miss auditions and casting and interviews and headshots and resumes and classes and, you know, all the stuff you have to do to get the job, right? Right. Um, so yeah, but I miss I miss theater predominantly. Yes, I wanted the one of the biggest losses for me during all this COVID is live theater. Like, right. um, I love you like it. to you like to attend. Yeah. I love to attend it. My mom was a concert pianist, and so from the time oh. I was very young. My brother and I were basically only went to live theater or live concerts, you know, movies and those things didn't really happen in our home because we wanted, you know, they wanted us to appreciate live events, which of course I still do. Yeah. That's the big thing I miss right now are live yeah. events. And I'm like, oh, and so when you're talking about that, I'm like, I just want a live event, another one, just one. <laughs> I am going to win yeah. in a couple of days. I'm going to an opera that they're doing outside here in Florida. So oh, nice. Nice. I will, I'll get to have a little bit. A little fix. <laughs> it's socially distanced, but, uh, but all yeah. socially distanced and all outside on the water. And it's actually going to be on my. We're going in, in the night of the performance is actually my birthday, so it's going to be the perfect birthday present. Oh. Out, the, out right next to the water as the sun goes Beautiful. down in Florida. You, you can't get it any better than that. Uh, well, happy birthday! Thank you. It'll be fun. Um, and I'm, I like, did a, actually. I did. A, I did a live outdoor Shakespeare. On Maui, nice. Like back in the '90s, it was the most remarkable production I think I've ever been in. 
and it rained and we were outside and you know people living on Maui are used to getting wet four or five times a day anyway so you know the show went on right and you know so we were doing Midsummer's Night's Dream and outside at night and it was raining and it was, you know, it was just all of it, it was amazing it's a full experience <laughs> oh I love it so let's talk a little bit about the kind of about the work you do and what I'm, when I, what I, where I want to start is um, shame, what shame is, if you could define what that is for, for our listeners, and also trauma and how those go together and don't go together. And, and, and what's the, the foundation using those two things so people have an understanding? Because I think a lot of people throw those words around these days, and I don't know that people really have an understanding of what they're talking about. So you could... Right clear clarify that i think that would be very helpful okay i will try to do the reader's digest version yes well you know and then, <laughs> and then i'll always ask questions that will help expand it believe me because these are topics that are near and dear to my heart especially the resilience and vitality piece we're going to get to and right and um a lot of gifted people that listen to this podcast have a lot of trauma and shame but they don't really understand that's what it is kind of like you didn't really understand that's what it was till later and so right. and, and a lot of gifted people don't even know they're gifted until somebody like me comes along and says well that's an overexcitability or you're gifted or can't you see so i kind of want to give them a little idea that first of all it doesn't mean you're bad that you have these things going on and there is hope on the other side of it so so if we could come from sure. that place that would be great absolutely okay <laughs> such a big, it's a, such a big question. All right. So um, if I could distill it down, shame is covert and overt. So some shame we recognize and some shame we don't even recognize that that's in the realm of shame, right? Okay. And so some shame is kind of under the surface and some shame is, you know, front and present. Um, shame exists anywhere there is difference. So if you are one down, indifferent from someone, there's shame there. If you're one up and different from someone, there's shame there. Okay. And that's a piece that a lot of people don't really understand. Right. Is that, you know, when you're talented, when you're gifted, when you succeed, there can be shame there because it sets you apart and makes you different yes. from other people. Mm -hmm. Right. So we also have two different kinds of shame. We have toxic shame and healthy shame. We want shame. Without shame, we would all be sociopaths and there'd be no rule of law. Mm -hmm. Toxic shame is when we identify with I'm bad, I'm different, I'm other, I'm uh, less than, I'm broken, I'm damaged, I don't fit in, I don't belong, I don't have value, right? So all of those kinds of, the, the ways in which we identify with there being something wrong with us, we're damaged and broken and unfixable. And therefore, we're unlikable or unlovable. Right. So healthy shame, what we want to do ultimately in healing shame is we want to nurture, support healthy shame. And we want to differentiate 
and tease apart and separate the toxic shame and then transmute the toxic shame into healthy shame. Now, in that alchemical, in that alchemy, we're given the superhero power of discernment. Mm-hmm. Right? We don't have discernment as children. So if someone were to say to a child, ooh, gross, don't pick your nose, that's nasty. What the child hears is, ooh, you're gross and nasty because you picked your nose. Right? Right. So the child identifies, I'm bad, I'm wrong. Right? They don't differentiate between their behavior and themselves. And so sometimes when that's so habituated over time and it becomes, you know, such a, 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 stru- a part of our structure, our internal structure, um, even as adults, we have a difficult time differentiating between ourselves and our behavior. And so in the transmutation of toxic shame into healthy shame, if we can use this newfound um, superhero power of discernment to recognize and acknowledge that I'm, I make mistakes and it's okay. I am not perfect and that's what makes me unique. Right. It also helps us in socialization because shame exists around socialization because shame is used to socialize children. Right. And so we have a we have an internal instinctual drive, non-cognitive, irrational, illogical. We have an instinctual survival mechanism for a longing for belonging. Because we're a hundred percent dependent upon others for our survival. And so even as an infant, we have an instinctual drive to connect, join. And maintain that relational connection no matter what, because our lives depend on it. Right. And so the experience of shame is the fear of the breaking of that interpersonal bridge. Mm. Because if I don't, if I fall out of favor, I run the risk of being abandoned, neglected, shunned, or cast out. Mm-hmm. And all of those could lead to my death right right because right we can't survive on our own and so we have this drive to belong we have the 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 need to remain in favor and so there's an instinctual physiological reaction that the body goes through when we're in the experience of being shamed Illogical, irrational, because it's not cognitive. We can feel shame and be shamed pre-verbal, pre-cognitive, pre-conceptual. Right. So it's not a neocortex, not a thinker process. It's a felt sense process, a lower brain instinctual drive for survival. And so the first thing that happens is we break social engagement. So oftentimes looking down and away, our brains get scrambled so we can't think clearly, providing it was we're at a stage in our lives where we can't think. Because like I said, this can happen pre-verbal, pre-cognitive. So our brains get scrambled so that we can't think. Our larynx constricts to stop us from saying whatever we were saying. Mm -hmm. 
our shoulders roll forward, our chest collapses. Sometimes one foot or even both feet turn in. And then our body goes into a freeze state, either through bracing or through collapse. And so imagine if that physiological reaction is habituated over time and we and we and it forms and informs who we are and how we think about ourselves what we come to believe about ourselves what we've come to believe other people believe about us right yeah mm -hmm. right and mm -hmm. so if you think about just the physiology of it you know what does this say and you see people that walk around and that you know and it doesn't have to be quite pronounced but you know i'm i'm exaggerating it right now right it's I'm sorry. It's contrition. Yes. Right. And that can lead all the way to, I shouldn't exist. I don't have any value. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. I shouldn't take up space here. I'm sorry to bother you. Right. So does that answer the yes. initial question of what, you know, how shame presents and where, where it comes from? Right. Yes, that answers the question. And I and I am happy that you mentioned the toxic shame and the healthy shame, because in a lot of the circles and places I travel, people only talk about the toxic shame and they don't really see that there is more to it. And just when you're discerning and, and I always use that word that we have that ability to discern and we want to use it as adults. So um, I think you right. made that very clear and and it's important to not just lump everything in, into one spot and think that that's all it is, you know, that there's, there's always right. more going on. There's more levels. So, right. so how does so trauma, let me, let me, can I, can I, let me, let me uh, uh, expand a little bit in there too sure. um, on the topic of healthy shame, because I think this is really significant. Yes. The messaging that we get from the outside world when we're young is that part of you, I don't like it. That part of you doesn't belong. That part of you, you need to hide. That part of you, I don't ever want to see again. That part of you, um, you know, you need, you need to hide that. You need to suppress that. You need to kill that part of you off. Mm -hmm. Right? So all the messaging we're getting from the outside world, you know, even with the best of intentions, is the loss of our authenticity. Yes. Because we begin to dismember parts of us. And so in healing shame, what we work on is expanding the container of the grown-ass adult large enough to be able to remember the dismembered parts mm -hmm. so that I can be a full authentic expression of all of me. I live in a polarized universe, so there's going to be parts of me that are in juxtaposition of opposites with one another. Yes. But I can hold them both. And with my discernment, when I go over to that group, I bring forward certain parts of me because that group is bound together with values and principles and, and, uh, and a way of thinking and behaviors and rules of law. And so in order for me to fit and belong and join, I bring forward those parts that are embraced in that group. And right. I may hold other parts back mm -hmm. because when I go over to this group over here, I can bring forward those parts. And I may even hold back some of the parts that I brought forward over there. 
right? So I get to be the full expression of myself. It's not being duplicitous or two-faced or anything like that. It's no, all of these parts of me exist. I embrace them all. And I have the discernment as to which parts of me I bring forward under which circumstances around which people. Right. I'm so glad that you brought that up, that you mentioned this, because I hear so many people say, well, if you bring part of you here and part of you here, then you're being dishonest or inauthentic. And I'm like, no, it's it's a yes and to all of it. It's being able exactly. to know what part of, you know, like it's a boundary thing. Like what part of me gets to come out and play here is a different part that'll come out and play here. And it's not inauthentic at all. And yeah. um, do you behave differently in a white tablecloth restaurant than you do a greasy diner, greasy spoon diner? Absolutely. Do you behave differently <laughs> at church than you do at a football game? Yes. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I dress differently too. <laughs> yeah. Right. So we bring out different parts of us in different environments right. around different people. And we get to, you know, join together. I mean, like, you know, we go to a concert. Right. Right. The thing that brings us together is the music. Right. But there are thousands of different people from all different walks of life who may not mix in another environment. Mm -hmm. Right. But we find the commonality through our enjoyment of that particular singer or band. Right. In that, in that container, it all fits. Yeah. Yes. Very, that I'm, I love how you shared that because I think it's so valuable for a lot of people to be reminded that there's no part that's bad. It's all just, just I just think it's neat, all the different facets of us humans because it's fun. Yeah, you know? we're multifaceted. Exactly. And multidimensional, you know. That, that too. <laughs> yes. And well, and gifted people think on multidimensions without effort, right? And, and so sometimes that gets made fun of, you know that we're operating in more than one place at one time. So how does trauma play into this? What, okay. anyway, what is trauma? Because a lot of people, let me, let me back up. A lot of yeah. people um, that I've worked with and that, and that I have listened to the show, but also people in my work, they'll come to me and they go, well, I don't have any trauma. Nothing big happened to me. And I'm like, well, there's more to trauma than the one big thing that you're comparing to something out there. So what is trauma? Like if we, we use that, it's getting overused now. People are, you know, doing the thing with it out in the culture, but what is it? Okay. So yes, we have little T traumas and we have big T traumas. Mm -hmm. Okay. Most people think in the term of big T traumas. But what is neglect? That's a thousand, death by a thousand paper cuts. Little T traumas. Right. So this is, I, this is a really important distinction. And I'm actually, I'm here in Mexico to finish writing the manuscript for a trauma survivor's guide called I Cried All the Way to Happy Hour. And the main focus of the book is to clarify that in order to really heat trauma, we need to look at it through the lens of the wound being physiological and psychological. Psychological with things and our past in hindsight. Right? So it's how we compartmentalize and try to reframe and gain some time distance in space. Right? Right. That's the psychological piece. 
but we can become traumatized pre-verbal, pre-cognitive, and pre-conceptual. So if we can become traumatized before we can think and reason, then clearly it's not a neocortex dysregulation. And so what trauma is, is a dysregulation, a disorganization, or a, um, a, a, a like a holding pattern, a stuckness, right, in our nervous systems. Because if we're if we're looking at um, our experience of the world, pre-verbal, pre-cognitive, and pre-conceptual, we have an instinctual drive to survive, period, end of statement, full stop. That instinctual drive exists in the lower brain, which we oftentimes refer to as the three Fs, but there's actually five Fs. So freeze, flight, fight, fornicate, and feed, right? So those are our survival mechanisms. They're without thought. They're without perspective because the lower brain doesn't have thought, doesn't have perspective. That's a higher brain function. Yes. And so what is threat? Threat is the potential or actual rupture of a physical or energetic boundary. So trauma occurs when our nervous systems naturally move from homeostasis into hypervigilance, into arousal to face whatever threat is coming, right? In that state of heightened arousal, we have three main choices, freeze, flight, and fight. There's actually a fourth one, fawn and fawn, feign and fawn. Um, but if we just think about the, the escalation of the nervous system into hypervigilance, hyperarousal, that is a sentient experience, meaning we feel our nervous systems reaching that crescendo of alarm, right? How am I going to manage this? What do I need to do to face this threat? Then let's say the, the, the threat is over by whatever means. All of that arousal needs to unwind discharge. So what goes up must come down. So right. all that energetic arousal in the nervous system has to unwind, discharge, reorganize so the nervous system can return to homeostasis or resilience. Now, if that process is interrupted in any way, shape, or form and is unable to complete, meaning it could get interrupted in the, in the escalation of arousal, or it can be interrupted in the de-escalation of unwind and discharge, if it gets interrupted, the nervous system wasn't able to return to homeostasis or resilience. And so now we've got like a short circuit in the electrical system of our nervous system. And that short circuit will remain in place until we're able to gain access to that disorganization, that holding pattern or, or whatever that is, right? And then work with the nervous system in such a way that it can then unwind and discharge and reorganize. So in working with trauma, we're trying to complete defense responses that may not have gotten completed. Or if our nervous system has gotten stuck in its response mm -hmm. process, 
um, then we want to be able to, to, to help it move out of that frozen state so that it, again, can discharge, reorganize, and return to resilience. So that's why I say we have to recognize that trauma initially occurs in the body, not in the mind, not in the event. It's a physiological response to a nearly impossible situation. And so you're saying the physiology gets stuck. Right. Right. And, and so then so, people tell stories to themselves about what it is that's wrong with them or what the problem is or whatever, trying to somehow put it together, what, why their physiology is dysregulated. Right. Right. But the lower brain, see, here's where, here's where our, the problem with a lot of traditional therapies tread is that the lower brain doesn't know the difference between perception and reality. Right. Mm -hmm. That's a higher brain function. So when we tell our stories, our lower brain is interpreting it as if it's happening again. Yes. So when we're lamenting and ruminating in our own minds, mm -hmm. our lower brain is having the experience of it happening again. When we cry on our friend's shoulder or in a closet on our, you know, by ourselves, our lower brain is experiencing it as happening again. Even when we're with therapists and healers of all sorts of varieties, mm -hmm. if they don't understand that trauma is physiological, they may let the client tell their story beginning to middle to end and therefore the client can be traumatized. And yes. so the narrative in working with trauma, the narrative is not the holy grail. It's a springboard. It's what allows us to gain access to the physiology, which is where we then need to put our attention. So when I'm working with someone and there is narrative, because sometimes there isn't narrative, right? We can become traumatized, pre-verbal, pre-cognitive, pre-conceptual. We right. still have implicit memory. So we still have memory of it, just not cognitive memory of it, right? right. But it, And sometimes we can suppress our memories and sometimes our explicit memory is so malleable we can change it and come to believe that the event was different than it actually was, right? Right, right. But the implicit memory is much more accurate, detailed, and long-lasting. And so that's the piece that we ultimately need to unwind and discharge. And so when I work with narrative, I take it out of order and little bits and pieces at a time because I don't want the system to flood and go into overwhelm. I don't want to collapse into underwhelm. And I certainly don't want to deepen the scratch on the record right because you know right. remember back in the day you know we'd have a scratch in the record we'd take the needle and you know you try to just like get it that one little groove out because you don't want to miss yeah. any of the song you know and then sometimes it just falls back in right you, know, and you can do that like three or four times you know and that's where <laughs> right that's where a lot of people are living and trying to work with their trauma they just keep ending they just end up in that right. scratch in the record right, right? And so we need to work with it in a different way so that that doesn't continue to happen, right? In right. fact, I would say probably about 50% right now, probably probably, probably about 40% right now but I, I, of my clients are talk therapists. And so when I have a, a new client who's a talk therapist, I have an initial rule, you know, just for the first session or two, and that's no narrative. Because I want them to understand that we don't need the narrative in order to work with trauma 
and heal trauma. Right. And like you said, too much of the narrative can keep retelling the story and re-traumatizing, even if somebody is well-meaning. You know, like, oh, Absolutely. tell me the story, yeah. tell me the story, because that's what we're reinforced with. But, you know, I always tell people we have to outgrow the story, that there's that the story is, is not it. That's the ticket. It's not the healing. It's not where we're headed. And so, I, you know, right. we're saying the same thing in that way. So how, what are some things, if somebody's listening to you right now, and of course, I'm going to have all your contact information in the show notes and everything, because you do work with people internationally, and this podcast mm -hmm. is international. Um, Beautiful. So if somebody's listening to you right now and they're going, man, I didn't even know I had all of that. And they're, they're like, you're uncovering things and awarenesses for them. And they're having those ahas and those little epiphanies. Um, mm -hmm. And they say, okay, well, I, I want to see what to do. Is there anything that person could start to do kind of before they call you or before they really start doing the work to kind of set the stage for them to see that they can be free? Well, you know, I mean, I would have to say first and foremost that I truly believe that anyone can be set free. Yes, I believe that. We have to understand the malady and then use the right modality. Correct. Yes. Right. And so that's first and foremost. Mm -hmm. Right. So when we can switch the lens or at least change the focus mm -hmm. and recognize that our past is real. It can't be changed. It existed and it still exists because it is the fabric of who we are today. Okay. We can't change the past, but we can change who we are and our relationship to it. Yes. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that's got to be the first shift. Then we have to take a look at mm -hmm. um, what are the presenting symptoms that I struggle with, that I have been trying to change, transform, transmute, disconnect, distract, you know, whatever <laughs> right, right. Are, right? Uh -huh. right. You know, what is that stuff? And then where are the reenactments, the patterns? the habituation because that is the the storyline that can help us track and trace back to the original wounds because when we have an original wounding experience whether it's pre-verbal precognitive preconceptual or during the developmental stage or even later in our lives when we have a wounding experience of any kind whether even that wounding experience was perceived Right, because we have very real reactions to that which we perceive. Yes. So perception exists in the imaginal realm and in the reality of our physiology, because we can become traumatized by something that that doesn't exist in reality. Right. right. We yes. can overhear a story that happened to someone else. And it can have such impact on us that it dysregulates our system, right? We can form beliefs about other people and places and things based on other people's experiences, not even our own, right? Yes. So anytime we have a wounding experience, we form beliefs. We form beliefs about ourselves. 
We form beliefs around that environment, around whatever behaviors were going on, and whatever people were in the, the experience. And those beliefs are there to protect us in case a similar event were ever to happen like that again in the future. When we're in the process of the wounding experience, we're also calling upon defenses, coping mechanisms, survival strategies right. to try to help us get through the experience. Then subsequent to the event itself, we then start bringing in ways of self-soothing and self-regulating. Mm -hmm. So all of that can get bound together. And now we've got this short circuit in the nervous system of the original wounding experience, the beliefs we formed, the defenses and coping mechanisms and survival strategies, the ways and means of self-soothing and self-regulating, all of that is all bound together within this cluster of the short circuit. Now those beliefs are there to protect us, right? So they're there 24 seven monitoring the horizon. Mm -hmm. Is that person coming back? Is that event going to happen again? Am I in danger? Is, you know, and we know quantum physics and mechanics teaches us that we have a tendency to find whatever we look for. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. So even though we're scanning the horizon to avoid a similar situation, we're actually drawing it towards us and we're being drawn towards it because in the reenactment, there's opportunity. Not everyone sees the opportunity. Not everybody seizes the opportunity. Yes. Most of the times when we're in a reenactment, the only thing we're thinking about is, oh, dear God, this again. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. Like, oh, my God, I'm done with that. <laughs> yeah. Fix this. Let's hide whatever, whatever, right? So we're in the reenactment, just focusing on the current details and circumstances, and we're missing the opportunity to recognize that it's a reenactment, to then track and trace it back to the original wound. Because, an, because what ultimately needs to happen in order to break the reenactment is the beliefs need to change. Okay. Because beliefs always win. It doesn't matter how educated you are, how many seminars you've taken again how many workshops you've attended how many books beliefs always win mm -hmm. so you can white knuckle discipline you can you know dedicate yourself you can strong arm your will and autonomy and the belief is always going to win and you're going to find yourself back in a reenactment again at some point right Right. And so we have to take advantage of this. We have to be able to to be able to to take our reenactment, track it back to the original wound, and work with the original wound as well. Because if we can get that disorganization, that cluster of overcoupled, you know, um, wounds and beliefs and defenses and coping mechanisms, but we, you know, if we can tease all of that apart and work with the physiology to help the nervous system discharge, reorganize, return to resilience. And we can have enough reparative and corrective experiences around the current reenactment. All of that's going to call the veracity of those beliefs into question. Then the beliefs can fall away. And then new beliefs can be brought in. 
based on who you are and where you are now in your life. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Because most people are acting like four-year-olds because all their early childhood wounds, all their developmental trauma, all their, you know, their attachment styles and all of that, that has formed and informed who they are, how they see the world and how they behave in the world. And that can remain stable for the rest of their lives unless they work with it effectively. And part of working with it effectively means we have to work with the biology and physiology of it. Yes. It's just not a mental game. You know, there's much more going on than you can do all the mental gymnastics in the world. Right. Exactly. And the biology and the physiology still remain unless you work with that. I'm so glad to hear you say that as you can, a lot of people think, um, I work with a lot of people who believe that if it's in their, you know, cognitive, they can think, 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 and they can think their way out of dealing Mm -hmm. with the pain or the disconnection, the dysregulation, the trauma, whatever it is. And I'm like, you can't think your way out of this. It's not a thinking thing. If you could have thought your way out of it, you wouldn't be asking me for help. You wouldn't be searching for an answer. You would have already thought your way out of it. It would be done. Right. And that's what I call, uh, you know, I'm sure you've heard spiritual bypass. Oh, yes. Spiritual bypass. I just did a blog on that recently. <laughs> oh, okay, cool. Well, I've taken that. I've taken that in my book and I've, and I've, and I've uh, expanded upon it with cognitive bypass and behavioral bypass. So these are the three main bypass systems that modern humans are using right now. So, <laughs> yes. you know, so and all of it is in an effort to not have to turn around, face what they got to face lean in and deal with it. The spiritual bypasses, I can pray it away. I can hand it over to spirit, God, Yahweh, whatever, whoever you want, you know, whatever, whoever, wherever your affiliation, you know, is in alignment with. Um, you know, cognitive bypass is what you just talked about, the mental gymnastics. I don't have to look at my past. I don't have to think about my past. I don't have to worry about my past. I'm just going to pick myself up by the... Mm-hmm. bootstraps i'm going to think differently and i'm going to march bravely forward right and then there's behavioral bypass I, I i feel something i don't want to feel so i right i, I i'm angry so i go hit the the the, the punching bag mm-hmm. i'm sad so i eat chocolate cake i'm you know scared so i uh you know take a hot bath and drink a bottle of wine right these aren't any of mine by the way i'm just using them as as general examples but you know what i mean so it's like we were you know we're trying to figure out the shortcuts we're trying to figure out all these bypass systems so that we don't actually really have to deal with what we need to deal with the irony is that if we could just stop and turn around and look at it acknowledge it, accept it, embrace it, lean in, become willing to feel it. That transformation can happen so quickly and be long-lasting because we're reorganizing the nervous system so that it can return to resilience. And when we have a resilient nervous system, it changes who we are and how we show up in the world. And I tell my clients all the time, it doesn't matter the details and circumstances of your life. 
What matters is who you are and how you show up in it. Right. 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 But most people don't have access to their intuition. They don't have access to the communication that comes from the body because they've spent their entire lives dissociating, disconnecting, and distracting themselves from their bodies. And meanwhile, all of these wounds have been forming. So our bodies are like a landmine field, a shop of horrors. Right. Why would anyone, why would anyone want to lean into that and feel that? Right. And it feels so right. overwhelming to somebody if they know it's all in there and they don't have a way or an understanding of where to start or what to do, or will I ever come out of it? You know, if exactly. I like, I've had people tell me, and I'm sure you've probably heard this too. If I start crying, I will never stop. Right. 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 They're right. afraid that if they open Pandora's box, that's it. It's never, there's no end in sight. And so there's, right. there's a lot to walking through all of this. Well, here's the fascinating thing about working with trauma effectively is that it's a short, term process yes because we're working with if you if you work with trauma physiologically we're working with the lower brain and the autonomic nervous system right the lower brain governs the autonomic nervous system right so when there is transformation meaning our nervous system is able to go into hyperarousal then find its own natural peak, unwind, discharge, reorganize, turn to homeostasis or resilience. If we're able to help the body go into that process, complete that process around one event, one memory, one story, one part of one story, it's having a global impact on all of our stories. And so somatic experiencing in and of itself has coined a naturalistic short-term therapy mm -hmm. because we don't have to go into every story. We don't have to go into every detail of every story and sometimes we don't want to go into certain details of stories and in working with trauma in an effective way we don't want to go to t0 right right away we want to work on the periphery of things while we're working on the edges the periphery of these experiences that we've gone through we're building foundation strengthening the container creating a greater sense of safety, bring, bringing in resources and skills and tools so that we can more safely go deeper later, right? And so in working with trauma, we talk in terms of certain axioms, slower is faster, right. less is more, smaller is bigger, right? So we work with a with a with a principle of titration and pendulation meaning we take a tiny little step into the edge of the trauma vortex lean in feel it hang out and then shift the attention awareness to the healing vortex of a resource of something that gives you a sense of well-being safety calm peace embodiment empowerment hope joy whatever that might be then we go back to find where the new edge of that trauma vortex is because it's different because the last titration that we did. And then we hang out on the new edge and explore that for a little bit and then come back out into the resource. And then we drop back in and find the new edge and hang out on it. Right. And so we're moving back and forth in and out 
not diving down that rabbit hole, rabbit hole, you know, head first, hoping that, you know, we're going to land, <laughs> you know, in the bottom somewhere and then be able to dig our way out of it. That doesn't make sense, right? We need to work slowly and we need to build capacity so that we can go deeper. Right. I'm, I'm, and, and that's so important because I hear so many people say, if I just dive all the way in and get to the, to the core thing, and then it'll all be better. And I'm like, well, there's other strategies that work a lot better than that. You don't want to go dive all the way in like that. That's not the most humane way or the most effective way to heal something, especially if there's lots of facets to it and a lot going on. And so again, what you're saying is so valuable to people because I think there's a lot of misunderstanding. And I think a lot of people have sometimes have so much desperation that they just jump and do things without really having somebody who's skilled and understanding really help them see that there is a way out. You can have your resilience and your vitality back. And, right. and, and there's a way to rebuild your belief system in a way that's functioning and healthy and serves you. And it is all possible all right. and you don't have to re-traumatize yourself 900 times to try to get to that, you know? So exactly. I hear that so often. So everything you're saying is so refreshing to me. It's like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh wow. boy. Well, if you're listening yeah. to Brian. You know, the other thing is, the other thing is, is sometimes we don't have the story. Right. Right. Cause it's precognitive, right? Yeah. Um, but it doesn't mean that we don't have the dysregulation. Correct. Right. And sometimes our stories are just too painful to revisit. Mm -hmm. Right. So I work with clients and I don't know what story it is that we're working with, even though they're working with it internally. Right. It's too much for them to speak out right. loud. Right. Right. But I can still work with that. Right. I can still help them move in and out of it and tease their nervous system, you know, into unwinding and discharging so that it can reorganize. Right. And that's another big part of it is you don't have to keep telling the story. And sometimes it is too painful to speak. And sometimes you don't remember it and you right. can still heal. You can still Absolutely. have your freedom and you can still heal. There's hope no matter what so any belief system people have that there's no hope for them or they'll be stuck there forever what you're sharing is that there is a way to do it differently and you can have your freedom absolutely yeah that's awesome i love it it's so exciting <laughs> to me so um i have a couple questions for you that are not work related but i always love to ask because i think they're fun questions sure. <laughs> um one of them is what is your most memorable food you've ever eaten <laughs> oh wow my most memorable food i've ever eaten gosh that makes me think of all the exotic places i've traveled <laughs> um yak butter <laughs> yak butter <laughs> and it wasn't memorable because i enjoyed it <laughs> i hear it's really really interesting really not so appealing to the taste buds of yeah, us <laughs> not, not so appealing um but one of the most memorable appealing foods i've ever eaten is either my own guacamole or my own peach cobbler nice Ooh, i love good guacamole <laughs> 
Next time I'm out in California, I'm knocking on your door. Make me some guacamole. I love guacamole. Uh, I love it. So everybody, if you're listening to Brian and you're loving what he's saying and talking about, or you want to reach out to him because you want to be free, uh, his information is in the show notes. So reach out to him and um, let him know that you heard him here and allow him to help you. So your last question of the day is you've been such a great, a great guest and I could go on forever asking you questions. Wow. It's fascinating to speak with you. But our last question for this particular interview, I will say, is if we were going to have a billboard for the whole world to see that has a message from you on it for all people, what would your billboard say? Trauma is not a life sentence. Oh, that's a really good one. Trauma is not a life sentence because it's not. You've given me and many other people so much hope from this interview. I thank you so much for being here with us and sharing things in such a way that all of us can grasp it. And I, and hopefully the understanding will ring far and wide. So thank you very much, Brian, for being here from Mexico City when you're getting ready to go <laughs> and finish your book. And I'm so excited to read it when it's out. So get it written. <laughs> I'm thrilled to And thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure and happy to do it again anytime. All right. I'm sure I'll think of more topics for you to talk about. Thank you so much. (laughs) So remember everybody to put your face to the sun so the shadows fall behind you because you're a rock star and you're here on purpose with a purpose. So join me in letting your light shine and be well until the next episode of Someone Gets Me. Thank you for listening. I trust you gained some valuable inspiration and information. Please join me and other visionaries in the Someone Gets Me Facebook group. Or for more information on my services and additional episodes, visit someonegetsme.com. Again, thanks for listening.